Welcome to the CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Molly Rao, and today I'm lucky enough to have Jeff Anderson with me, and I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself. My name is Jeff Anderson, and I live in San Antonio, Texas. I I love to write books about writing and uh, grammar, but I also like to write books for kids. So I have books like Patterns of Power that are about grammar, which is actually the reading and writing connection, but we'll talk about that later. And I also write books for kids. And right now I have a series called the Zach De La Cruz series, Me and My Big Mouth, Just My Luck, and Upstaged. So those are the books that I have available for, those are for middle graders, but I love talking about writing and reading and the joy of grammar for grades K through, through eight. And, um, just to tell you a little bit about myself, Jeff. So my twin sister, mm-hmm. she is a uh, writing person. Okay. Like hardcore. In college, she had teen grammar shirts with all like right. wow. diagramming a, of a sentence on the back. Wow. So she is, you know, all about grammar. And, she's serious. Oh, yeah. She's very serious. Um, so, you know, I have that connection in my life, but I'm not quite that person. So um, as a content classroom teacher, if you and I were going to maybe work together and you were going to help me improve writing in my classroom and see how I can take kind of what you know and use it as a science teacher, where would we start? The first thing I would say is you don't have to teach writing. Use writing as a tool to meet your own goals already. Just give the space to writing so that they see that writing happens in science. Instead of, I'm sure you don't do the questions at the end of the chapter, but instead of that saying, Okay, photosynthesis, if we were talking about that, write as much as you can, as fast as you can, as well as you can in one minute. And just see what starts to rise up and not think about it as, oh, I need to teach grammar. In your course, your content is the what drives it, but the ways in which we express ourselves are talk and writing and reading and all those go together. So I would just encourage them to write like scientists or write like um, social studies peoples. Historians, yes. <laughs> yes. Historians and other kinds of social scientists. Yes. Um, so I know you've talked to me a little bit already about the role observation plays in what you do. Can you elaborate on that? Well, whether we're talking about writing or reading or grammar, it to me is all about observing not only demonstrations, but also the demonstrations that are before us in the text we read. So you have a scientific text. You look at it, you notice the ways this writer writes informational text. So there's a noticing element to that. You might notice that a lot of writers, when they're doing informational text, use comparison and contrast. You might be able to connect that too. So if I were, if we were on a team together Mm -hmm. and I didn't teach science and you taught science and I teach English language arts, well, maybe if I worked on compound sentences or serial commas, I would tell you that I'd worked on that and just so they could point it out in their scientific text but also point it out in their responses or, or even invite them to try it out. Mm-hmm. Not for a grade, but as a form of expression because it's all, even grammar is about a form of expression. Like I would not have been the person that wore a shirt that said <laughs> grammar rules, you know, in, in college. In fact, I was intimidated by grammar and I, but I love to write. I love to express myself. I love to talk. And what I realized over time is when I went back and studied this, why, why didn't grammar stick for most kids? What I looked at was this idea of expression gets missed. It becomes about right and wrong mm-hmm. rather than exploration and possibility and meaning and effect. 
It's about, you know, there's a special effects devices of writing, mm -hmm. but they get kind of pigeonholed into this right wrong kind of thing. It's about diagramming sentences. It's about stuff that doesn't make meaning for me. But a first grader gets excited when he figures out, oh, I can make your voice go up at the end of a sentence by putting a question mark. Or if I write in all caps, that means I'm yelling. They have all these things that happen and discover and explore, not right and wrong, effect and meaning. So I think that all comes back to observation, just watching what happens in the world in text, watching how we use our voices and what different things happen, and how do I indicate that to my reader? So I like to say that the conventions are where reading and writing crash together. They become entwined by making meaning because of the special effects devices in, in between writing and reading or composition and comprehension, they're actually the meaning activators. So they're very exciting to know as a reader and a writer both, you need those skills to read any kind of text or to create any kind of text. So it comes back to this idea of, of feeding each other and, and feeding it in science and feeding it in social studies, because maybe I don't want to be a writer. Maybe I don't want to read as much, but I'm really interested in informational text. I'm really interested in science. To be a competent scientist, I need to understand how I can use a colon mm -hmm. in my lab journal and how I can use a serial comma. And they'll all be about detail. And so I can use them, these skills in real ways, which I think makes it more interesting. It's about expression. It's about connection. It's about messages. It's about thinking together, exploring and discovering rather than this right-wrong team. Mm -hmm. We want to be on the shared exploration team. We want to be on the discover team. And I would also stress to you that when you teach writing in your class, it's not about them not making mistakes. Because when we make it about being not making mistakes, then we avoid taking risks. What a great opportunity to explore the possibilities instead of being worried about being right and wrong. I wouldn't expect you to go back and correct them. I wouldn't expect you to go back. That's not the job I want you to do. I want you just to give them opportunities to write and practice using what they have. And maybe point out, like, does anybody notice what this comma is doing here? It still goes back to the observation, but it also goes back to the meaning making they're making from the reading in your classroom. Mm -hmm. So... There are a couple things I want to touch on that you just mentioned, but the first one that I want to go back to is you were talking about primary students and noticing things like that the question mark makes your voice go up. Mm -hmm. So how do you set up the opportunity for them to observe something like that? Like what would that look like? Well, again, that reading writing connection is the best way. Kids in primary school love Pete the Cat. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you take a section of Pete the Cat and put it on a chart tablet, you've created a choral reading. And what's nice about Pete the Cat is almost any page you can pick has capital, letter, capital letters, periods, question marks, exclamation marks. So they're going to be part of letting us know how to read it. And we'll discover it as a choral read first, and then we'll practice it together, and we'll talk about what our voice does, and we'll join together in doing it. But then as we're having that conversation, we can go back and notice... So the question mark tells us for our voice to go up at the end. Mm -hmm. And what do you? What else do you notice about this question? Oh, it starts with the who, it starts with the what. Mm -hmm. Oh, isn't that interesting? And whatever's in that text, let that be your guide and they'll be curious about it. So what do you notice? What do you see? Not telling them what they notice and what they see, but just notice, what did I do with my voice? Oh, you went up at the end. Oh, why do you think I did that? And how do you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that making everything a conversation, one problem, what 21st century learners is, is they have underdeveloped 
cognitive structures that are that have to do with observation. It has to do with what seeing what's in front of them. Mm-hmm. They um, because they're so distracted by the world we live in, which is always constantly calling for your attention. So you can do far more work unconsciously than you consciously can. So one of the things that will make something pierce their conscious level of attention is the conversation. The -hmm. conversation brings up the conscious level of awareness. And if I make you consciously aware of what a question mark is doing Mm -hmm. when we repeat the cat, then in guided reading or in my science class, when my teacher writes a question on the board, I know I make that connection Mm -hmm. because I'm conscious of it. Otherwise, I just maybe read through it and don't really think about how the meaning is made. Yeah. So do you find yourself reading it and rereading it and kind of experiencing that several times? Or, you know, do you have one read through and then start breaking it down? I think there's exploration in a talk and it might happen over. I wouldn't kill it Mm -hmm. like all at once, but over several days, I think observing and then playing around with it and then maybe hey let's make our own questions or what did you see mm-hmm. questions today because wouldn't that be cool then after we looked at this question in guided reading they see a question oh look i noticed it has a question mark and your voice went up at the end when you showed us how to read that so did you make your voice go up at the end mm-hmm. why why did you and just bringing it back to their the observation of what we're doing and why we do it because we're helping the writer has helped us mm-hmm. as a reader by using these signs and signals that tell us what to do with our voices and tell us what they mean. They're all embedded in meaning and they all have a purpose. Every choice a writer makes has an effect. And that's what I'm trying to get them to see. And I think it can happen through natural conversation when you ask that wonderful, dangerous, never know what's going to come out of it question like, what do you notice? What do you Mm -hmm. see? What do you wonder? You never know what they're going to say. And the exciting part of that learning process is being able to take whatever they say and spin it into gold. And that's that's the work of being a teacher about how do we honor their observations? How do we help them validate what they see? And I think sometimes when I took a more playful look at it and started thinking about how do we actually acquire literacy how do we acquire reading how do we acquire our talk we we acquire it through imitation so in that national natural process with your kids as you looked at a playful text of course some of them then picked up i can be playful and interesting and then the kid that maybe stayed like really close to like what he thought academic writing was heard honey money and said what you can do that miss and they, and uh-huh. they it was it was blessed. Yeah. So then they're going to be more likely to try that and think this doesn't because they actually think I need to sound like a textbook and not to slam textbooks. But sometimes they're a little boring and flat in general, mm-hmm. and that's what that's the opposite of how we want them to write. We want them to write with specificness. The specificness gives it all of its power and glory, and we and we actually do that through grammar. Like what, even when you go down to something like subject. And predicate. I would never call it subject and predicate, but I think there's some value in understanding the word subject. Mm-hmm. Every sentence is about someone or something. And once you have that subject that it's about, then what would happen is like Mr. Anderson. Nothing happens unless you have a verb. I don't call it predicate. I call it verb because the business part of the predicate is the verb, the action, the state of being. And what, when you start seeing that, writing becomes exciting all of a sudden. Volcano blows, a volcano blows or rocks uh, appear. You know, you think about all this idea in two words, you could actually have a beautiful 
summary of something. Two words. If you have a really carefully chosen, mm -hmm. selected, active, beautiful subject or noun that has that does something, and you choose a really awesome verb that does a lot of work, mm -hmm. rocks appear as the ocean beats against the volcano. I mean, all these beautiful things can happen just in two words. So it's not always even about length. It's about musicality. It's about some shorter, some longer. But when I, when I discovered it's about meaning and effect and possibility and exploration rather than right and wrong, it frees it up because it's heavy. It's heavy for most of us because we thought of it about, I'm taking it, they're going to judge me. There's shame at being wrong. But if you're not, mistakes are signs of growth. Part of being a better writer, part of growing as a writer is making mistakes because if you're going to reach beyond where you are right now, you're going to make mistakes and you're taking away risk. And the only way you grow as a writer, you'll stay in simple sentence land if you don't have opportunities to see, oh, like prepositions. Well, let's talk about what do prepositions do for writers and readers? Well, they ground us in time. They ground us in space. So we can say, I use prepositions to ground my reader in time and space. I get conscious of that as a reader and seeing examples of that in real text that we've zoomed in on so that we cut away some of the noise in a bite-sized digestible chunk that we can actually see. And that changes me as a reader and a writer mm -hmm. forever because I'm not thinking that it's about being right and wrong. I'm thinking it's about, oh, this is how I add detail to my, my teacher always wants me to write with more detail for it to come alive. And then I do that and all of a sudden, I have something, a real concrete skill that I can use to do that. Not something that I have to be afraid of making a mistake. Mm -hmm. Love this. And this whole conversation is taking me back like years and years mm -hmm. ago to a... a to the a, early a, trauma. A CCI, no, a CCIRA conference that I went to like as a, I don't know if I was maybe a first or third year teacher. So early in my career and Linda Hoyt was oh, presenting yeah. and those bite-sized chunks and the way, you know, we observed a text like you were talking about and, you know, and she would read it to us and, you know, we would notice things about it and then we got to try it and then we'd add, you know, and then we'd look at something else and then we'd write another sentence and at the end we had no idea. We were putting together a whole paragraph through all these bite-sized chunks of observation and there was so much musicality to it. You know, she showed us like three different ways that they wrote about you know, it was nonfiction writing. So she was talking about, you know, her books mm -hmm. on nonfiction writing and, you know, just three different ways that we could start sentences with that musicality. And so I'm, I'm loving this conversation because it goes back to a time in my teaching. And I feel like, you know, it's also reminding me I've I've definitely fallen away from this. Like I've forgotten to bring we, some music it's like into muscle the writing memory. in my we classroom. Do, we do. We have habits and mm -hmm. we're used to certain habits. So we have to be brought back a lot of times. And sometimes... Sometimes the way we get brought back is somebody saying, well, we're going to make this simple. We've got to make this too simple. We've got to make this about test practice. We've got to make this when we forget it's about writing. It's always supposed to be about writing and reading. How does this change me and affect me as a writer and a reader? When we go to right and wrong land, when we know we're kind of veering off the path, it's about meaning and effect and risk because it coming back full circle to what we started talking about this idea of observing. So the writing next research recommends the study of models and it's read analyze and imitate they say emulate i like the word imitate better because emulate sounds like you're going to catch yourself on fire i know, <laughs> I know it's not the same word but it just uh, it's an image for emulate, me i like it imitate better, yeah. imitate mm -hmm. so um so study is observe mm -hmm. right like yeah. we do with the old scientific method which some people say doesn't 
isn't true anymore. They put it in a different order, but that's another conversation. We won't have that. Well, that's it's it's the same kind of thing. We've over formalized that process. Right, right, Instead right. Instead of stepping There's back and one going, order. you're just observing things, and then you're ex, you know, in you make some explorations, some talk, yeah, and, conversation, and raising you, our conscious level yeah. of awareness, and then you try to figure out how it works. I mean, that's really all science is, and it sounds like that's what good writing is. You well, know, how did we learn? How do we and, learn to talk? Through imitation, Mm -hmm. observation, imitation, trying it out over and over again, and then getting feedback. So what we're going to do is, according to that writing next research, it does kind of, it does, it is successful in this order that when you observe Mm -hmm. first, read, see, know, experience, and then we go back and then we have an analysis. And all analysis means is conversation about what happened, what we saw, what moves did writers make to create meaning, and we're through conversation, piercing our conscious level of awareness Mm -hmm. of the moves writers make to create meaning for readers, which bolsters our reading and writing lives and all of our reading lives in any subject area. Mm -hmm. But that idea again, then try it out. So, so really just like see, talk, try. And that's that experience you were talking about with Linda is that informational writing. And that's the same thing for grammar. It's just, we're applying it in a different way. But the grammar of writing, if you put beautiful text up and have the kids ask, what do you notice? They're going to see all sorts of things that we're not even noticing at first. A lot of times the kids see something and I say, I hadn't seen that. I Mm -hmm. hadn't thought about it that way. And I'm being completely honest. I really hadn't. As my my reader for my 53-year-old, this is what I see. And it's helpful to see my classmates in third grade or eighth grade or ninth grade seeing things that I don't see. And then noticing that the next time I read, because now it's pierced my conscious level of attention, the next time I engage with a text, I notice it in a way that I wouldn't have noticed it before. And because I'm noticing it in a more conscious level, the likelihood that I'll spill into my meaning making and spill into my writing is much higher. Just the same thing as it becomes an option for me as a reader and a writer, both, because it's all about making meaning and having an effect. Every choice a writer makes has an effect on the reader. Um, so my next question, you know, thinking about teachers trying some of these ideas out, um, when you're looking at, you know, certain patterns, I mean, you talked about kids just observing. The so, patterns of power. Yes. Um when you're selecting things, do you try to select a few texts that have kind of the same pattern so they can see it in multiple places? Is it okay to focus on one? Um, you know, and I, I know you said you want them to look for things that you didn't intend as well, but right. I mean, we are, we are tending to, you know, at least focus on certain things because we do have targets that we're working towards as teachers. So how do you, how do you go about that selection and look what's, at, what's interesting, what really got me interested in patterns was my scientific training at a particular point earlier in my career. There were this idea of patterns of weather was patterns. Everything about science was patterns. And then I started noticing everything about everything is patterns, especially grammar, because there's things in mathematics. I learned that patterns were things you could reasonably count on happening over time. So there are certain patterns as a first grade teacher, as a fourth grade teacher, as an eighth grade teacher that I know that this age kid needs to know, could come from my standards, could also just come from my observation and knowing of what they're trying and attempting to do. So instead of correcting them, when I see them attempting something and not quite making the mark, instead of correcting them, I'll put up a sentence 
that shows the pattern, like a compound sentence, let's say. Maybe it's from Steve Jenkins, maybe it's from literature. It doesn't really matter because literature and informational writing, compound sentence is a compound sentence. And, and I can apply what I've learned from informational writing to my, to my uh, fiction writing, and I can apply what I learned in my fiction writing to my informational writing. I don't want to, you know, yeah, narrow it. Down. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, across, it's across disciplines, it's across everything. So yeah, we could look at something like a compound sentence pattern. And we can have a conversation about that, but I don't lead them into saying it's a compound sentence until they see it's a compound, a compound sentence. Mm -hmm. Kids will say interesting things like, you know, a compound sentence is a sentence plus joined with a comma. Uh, this one little girl said, it's like a part dividing the sentence into two halves. Ooh. And so she's grazing the topic. I don't have to, I let it accumulate though. It's like there's two pictures Sometimes the kids will even say there are two sentences. It's like there are two ideas going on at once. And then I'll take all that. I'll let that accumulate and say, so what we're noticing is there are two sentences here. <gasps> Look, how do we know that this is a sentence or not? And then discover it together. And then, and then we can come to a phrase about that. Like I join sentences with a comma and an and or and a but. And then eventually that'll become the fanboys. Um, but we have to be really careful, I think. We can get so analytical that we're into something like sentence diagramming, which I think takes it too far away from me. Mm -hmm. I mean, cool, I'm fine with sentence diagramming if you want to be a linguist. Mm -hmm. but, but we're teaching in schools, we're teaching grammar to help them be better readers and writers. It's a way to enhance the meaning making process is what we're after them making meaning. So we have to be careful not to take it back too far to labels. Labels can be helpful to a point, but I, terms, I always say terms are, grammar terms are like grammar. Grammar lessons are like governors. They should have term limits. We have to be careful that we don't overstuff them with terminology that becomes abstract and then puts a separation between me and making meaning, which is what the grammar is for. Meaning and effect, not right and wrong. Yeah, and I like that kind of overarching idea you have there that we have to, and you know, as a science teacher I see this a lot too like sometimes we get so bogged down in like all these details and vocabulary and things that are part of knowing and I'm making air quotes here knowing um the content and really the bigger idea is how does it add meaning to their writing how does it you know help them get their ideas across and so you know I like that it's one of my favorite books is the knowing. recognizing it's a tool not yeah. just knowledge for knowledge knowledge's sake well, and there's this line in the book called The Knowing Book by Rebecca Kai Dotlich, K-N-O-W-I-N-G, The Knowing Book um, by Rebecca Kai Dotlich, in which she, the book starts off with, look up. Sky has always been the sky. It's always been above you. It's above you now. and will always be above you. Count on it. It's what you will always know. And then the book, when you get to the very end, it has that nice device of repetition, a repetition pattern. Mm -hmm. Again, patterns are everywhere. We even try to make patterns when they don't exist. That's called a conspiracy theory, but that's another <laughs> thing. But, we, but patterns are everywhere. And at the end, it says, look up. It's at the end of his journey. The stars are above you, and they've always been above you. And I like thinking about that knowing book in terms of grammar. Mm -hmm. Is that, hey, when we're, when we're getting bogged down in our data and we're losing sight of what's reality, that this is about reading and writer sorry, readers and writers and what we can do to bolster and support them in making meaning. Mm -hmm. Then we look up 
This was supposed to be about writing. This is supposed to be about reading. It's not supposed to be about identifying the noun in the sentence. Because what a word is changes depending on how it's used in a sentence. It doesn't mean we can't talk about nouns, but identifying every single part of speech takes us so far away from the meaning. But we can talk about naming names. Using a specific name like Camp Winnemucca is different than just saying, I went to camp. I went to Camp Winnemucca. I capitalize names. Learning those things are helpful to readers and writers to understand names are capitalized. So when they're reading the boxcar children, they know why the word watch is capitalized because it's their dog. It has a reason. So usually watch isn't capitalized because usually it's a verb, but here it's a noun and it's capitalized because it's somebody's name. That's meaning. I love it. Um, there was something I was thinking there and it went clear out of my head because I was so... Well, yeah. I've got a spray en of dialogue. En enraptured with you know, <laughs> the imagery there, um, even picturing the dog. But <laughs> well, isn't it's the power uh -huh. dog versus watch the yeah. dog? It's different. Yeah. Car versus Escalade mm -hmm. gives you different pictures in your brain, yes. and that we don't think of that as grammar, but really word choice is part of that idea of we're taking this noun and we're taking it from the abstract. And we're moving it from car to Escalade. Now, now your listeners are picturing a black SUV with dark dim windows that they weren't picturing when I said car, but Escalade, word to word, same, mm -hmm. you know, same, same thing, one word, one word, noun to noun, but it changes all of a sudden when we name it. Well, this mm -hmm. gives me a, another thing to talk about because people always worry about labels like proper nouns. Mm -hmm. All proper nouns are are names. Mm -hmm. They're all names. People are like, no, no, what about religions? Well, that's the name, name of, of a religion. religion. That's the name of the state, name of the city. It spirals upward. But so why don't we say something like I capitalize names? Why do we throw in an abstract term like proper noun that, that confuses kids and teachers alike? All mm -hmm. of a sudden we've made this new category that sounds harder, but really it's just names. All proper nouns are names. Every sentence has a verb. There's some truths about writing that kids never get that we can get to them through what we call the focus phrase, which comes from Terry Thompson's work mm -hmm. in the construction zone, which is a book about scaffolding. And what we've found is really like naming what we're doing, like I capitalize names, using that I voice mm -hmm. to name. In the context of studying this bite-sized chunk, we're actually talking about what we can do as a writer and a reader and make meaning. So simplify, simplify. Fantastic. I think we have given our listeners, tons of things to think about. Enjoy well, you've given me things to yeah. think about. I love it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I really a, appreciate it. This was a great time. Um, so thanks for coming, Jeff. My pleasure. And Check out Patterns of Power. Yeah. And Patterns of Power Plus, June 2019. Bye, guys. There we go. Got some reading to do. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to ccira.org. On CCIRA.org, you can join as a member or find great resources like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading. You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading, or you can find us on Facebook where we also have a members only group that we're trying to build. And our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you. 
And again, if you're looking for new content, please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRAvideo at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.